Well, good morning. Those songs were so perfect that he's always faithful to us. I just couldn't help but think of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Our father is always faithful. He's always, always does what he says. He is unchanging. He always is who he is. We're so thankful that we have a faithful God. I love the other song, Not, not Fearing or Doubting. With Christ by my side, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. Again, I mean, that just reminds me of what Job says. Even though he slay me, I will trust him, you know? And, and again, that's just, the, the, the reason he could say that is the, the faithfulness of our Father. That's the reason we can be thankful in the midst of trial and rejoice in the midst of suffering and pain. And, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's what we're going to look at this morning from his word. Actually, as I was thinking of, of uh, preaching this week, filling in for Shane, and uh, we had Adventure Club on Wednesday night. And if you guys don't know what Adventure Club is, that's, that's our children's ministry on Wednesday night, and uh, it's great. You've got to come check it out. It's a lot of fun. But we sang a song this week. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I was talking to a couple of people about the fact that we just don't have a lot of, you know, we have all these Christmas songs we sing every year, but they were like, where are the Thanksgiving songs? And I was like, that's a good, that's a good thought. So for Adventure Club, we sang a song from 1 Thessalonians 5, and it says, always rejoice, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus, in everything give thanks. And that comes, like I said, from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, which says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is the, the will of our Father, it is God's will for all of us to give thanks in every circumstance. And then when you start thinking of all the circumstances that we've either already faced in this life or the ones that are coming, there's many circumstances that it is very hard for us without digging deeper to figure out how to give thanks, how to give thanks in the midst of sickness, how to give thanks in the midst of suffering, how to give thanks in trials, how to give thanks in disease and in death, how to give thanks with an evil world and world system around us. Where does that thankfulness come from? And what does it mean to have a lack of thankfulness? Because if you look at the Bible, the Bible is pretty explicit. The, the, the lack of thankfulness is a very, very evil thing. A lack of thankfulness is always abhorrable to God. And a lack of thankfulness is something that sometimes we judge as not that big of a deal. But if God wiped out a whole generation of his own people in the desert for a lack of thankfulness. It's a big deal to the Lord. And I think the reason it's such a big deal is because the root of thankfulness is, is founded in, it's planted in a trust of who, who he is and what he says. A lack of thankfulness is, is equal to a lack of belief. And, and we, we lack faith and we doubt. We have moments of forgetfulness and sinfulness and darkness. We have times where, where we're not... We're not informed by his word and submitting to his truth. We're not walking in righteousness or faithfulness and we, and, we, and we forget. But this morning we want to remember. We want to remember what it means to be thankful, why we should 
give thanks in every circumstance at all times, especially heading into Thanksgiving, right? I mean, we have a holiday coming right in front of us, and it's called Thanksgiving. And I thought this was a very appropriate time to look into what is the greatest thing that we can give thanks for, to remember why we should be thankful at all times so that we can live in thankfulness, not only for a holiday, but in all of our lives. The root of thankfulness is trusting in God, is trusting in his character, is trusting in his word or in his will, even if what he says in his word isn't exactly what we believe is true or we don't understand. It's submitting to him and in love and in fear, understanding that his plans, purposes, word, and will are best And even though we cannot comprehend the end or even see where it's heading, we understand and trust that this must result in the good of all those who love him or called by his name. It must result in the glory of Christ. And there is no other possibility other than that it will conform us into the image of his son. And even if that's all we knew, that's that's good enough. That's enough to be thankful in every circumstance. It's understanding that his plans and his ways, his methods and his means are always best. They're always for our good. They're always orchestrated by him to conform us into the image of his son, to make us more and more like Christ. And they're arranged to strengthen our faith, a faith given to us, imparted by him and planted in us, a faith that he not only gives to us, but then displays in us during trials and suffering so that he will be glorified, so that he will receive praise and honor as he does his work in us, even in the midst of sinfulness, even in the midst of difficulty, disease, death, trials, every other thing we face in this life. It's all ultimately to glorify him, which is so, so cool. I mean, if you really even think about that, you know, he loves us, he sent his son because he loves us, he sanctifies us because he loves us. The love of God compels us to do things. And then all of that being said, it's still, it's still, greater than us because all of those things, even all of those things are not for us but for the glory of his son ultimately out of a love that he has for his own son and we are just love gifts of the father to the son which the son will give back to the father so that the father is all in all. I mean, think about that. That's the big picture. You know, so when you start thinking like that, you're like, okay, so what we're going through, what we're going through ultimately is for the glory, the eternal glory of Christ and the magnification and glorification of the love of God for all eternity. And now that's good enough to be thankful. But there's some other things that we need to think about. And we need to think about why, why we forget to be thankful and, and why we lack thankfulness. I think one of the, one of the uh, telling scriptures, 2 Peter 1.9, it talks about sinfulness, foolishness, and forgetfulness causing us to, to lack thankfulness. And in red negatively, it basically says a lack of diligence or a lack of righteousness, a lack of knowledge or a lack of self-control, a lack of perseverance or a lack of godliness, a lack of brotherly kindness or a lack of love will cause us to be blind, short-sighted, and forget our purification from our former sins, which would, would cause us to therefore not be thankful even as believers, we can immerse ourselves into the world. We can have simple habits. We can be self-centered in our ambitions and forget. We can forget what we were, what God has done, why we are here on this planet still alive. And it, it can be scary, too, because Romans 1 tells us that a lack of thankfulness maybe 
evidence of the wrath or judgment of God presently in this life. And that's terrifying. In Romans 1, describing the wrath of God, it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him with God, nor did they give thanks. And they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, more and more and more, to their desires, to their wishes, to their will, until they, they hated God and worked actively always against him and then faced his eternal wrath. So how do we protect ourselves from lacking thankfulness? How do we arm ourselves to be thankful in everything? Well, Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on this earth. Hebrews 1, or Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, lay aside every encumbrance, lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with all endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We must set our minds on Jesus Christ. We must fix our hope on things above and not things of this earth. And we have to remind ourselves of who he is and what he has done already and what is coming. This is where thankfulness is born. This is where thankfulness grows into permanent joy, even joy when we face trials and difficulty, loss, ridicule, distress, and death in this life. 1 Peter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. He says, and here's why you're rejoicing. Here's the purpose of the trials. So that, for this reason, so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials, suffering, hardship in life reveal faith that exists that has been given to us by Christ which will result in the salvation of our souls which will result in the glorification of Christ which will result in us being together with him eternally because of his great love and he says and you greatly would rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls so again even if that was it if that was the one truth we could hang our hat on isn't that good enough to give thanks in every circumstance, knowing that every circumstance is meant to produce and to reveal a faith imparted to you by God, by his love, by his grace, through the blood of his son, so that it will result in the salvation of your soul eternally. I mean, that's good. And that's enough to be thankful for. But there's so much more. So this morning, I want to look at reasons that we must remember to, to cause us to always be thankful, whether we've forgotten our former purification from our, our, our former sins or whether we're fearful of treading on the doorsteps of God's wrath because we see a lack of faithful or thankfulness in our life. No matter what it is, this morning we want to return to Christ and remember what he has done so that we can rejoice with thankfulness in our hearts for the gift that he has given us through the blood of his son. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is a wonderful place to go because it may be one of the most explicit statements of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of scripture, reminding us of what we were, what he has done, what our purpose is here and now, and where we are heading. This is a wonderful, wonderful place to transform our minds, to renew our minds, to fix our hope on things above, 
as we answer these questions, who, are, who we were, what we deserved, what we have been given, what is our purpose, and why should we rejoice in thankfulness? So turn to Ephesians 2. While you do that, let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on here, because this makes it even more impactful. This is, this is good. Paul's writing this letter from prison around 62 AD during his first imprisonment in Rome, which you can read about in Acts 28. He also wrote during this time in this imprisonment, Colossians, Philemon, and uh, Philippians. And he sent letters of encouragement to these small churches in Asia Minor during this time. Now, he's been imprisoned in Rome about two years when this letter was written. Now, in 56 AD, that would be the last time Paul saw the elders in Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts. And then he traveled from there to Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem that he was arrested early in 57 AD. And he was arrested in Jerusalem. During that time, he endured beatings by his fellow countrymen. He endured false accusations, um, uh, trials purposed to condemn him to death. After these trials, he uh, failed. He narrowly escaped a murder conspiracy. He was held in custody for two years in Caesarea before being given another trial in 59 AD. From there, he was sent to Rome. And on the way, he went through a devastating storm, a major shipwreck. He was... uh, 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 made it safety on, on the island of uh, Malta. He was bit by a viper, waited for the winter to pass, was put back on a boat, arrived in Rome in 60 AD, and was imprisoned for two years. While imprisoned in Rome for those two years, he gets word that people back in these churches th- that he loved and that he planted were preaching Christ motivated by envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition with a desire to cause Paul more stress and distress and strife in prison. And in that place... Paul says these words, Philippians 2, 17 through 18. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with all of you. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And then he goes on in Philippians 4 to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In Colossians 1, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In Colossians 3, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, imperative command. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In Ephesians 1, right before these verses, he says in verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then in Ephesians 5, he says, always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. The guy who has been wrongfully under arrest, in custody and in prison for six years, and in the midst of all of that, has internal and external persecution, is writing to those who are free out in these churches and to those who are actually still trying to cause him uh, distress, slandering and maligning him and reminding them to rejoice in all circumstances and to give thanks to God in all things. You'd think it'd be the other way around, right? You would think, and, and it's not that they weren't encouraging him, but you would think it would be them encouraging Paul as he's in the midst of 
trial and distress and imprisoned. But Paul's turning around and reminding them that all things are for his glory, that this is good, I'm rejoicing, you must rejoice too. Encourage me with your own joy and be thankful for all things. And I bet if you think about it, you've seen this. I've seen this in other believers and brothers and sisters that are in the middle of distressing times, in the middle of trials and suffering, in the middle of pain and loss and death and disease and sickness. And you know, and you go to, to love them and to comfort them and to remind them of God's goodness. And, and they're, they're already thankful. They're not only thankful, but they're, they're joyful. And they're like, oh, brother, I don't want to be any other place. You, you're thinking you just want to comfort them, and, they, and you do because that's love. But they're, they're telling you, that there's no other place I'd rather be than in the middle of this. And they're telling you that God is so good and his ways are perfect. I didn't choose this, but I couldn't imagine any better. And we're not talking about after the circumstance. We're not talking about after the trial. Any, anybody can see the good in something after it's done. Even an unbeliever can do that. It doesn't take spiritual discernment. But for the child of God, it's in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the suffering, not knowing whether or not you're going to come out of this the same on the other side or, or it's going to benefit you here in this life, there's a submission, a trust in, in, in the Lord, in his character, and his word that produces a peace and a comfort and a thankfulness and a joy that surpasses the understanding of even those brothers and sisters that are coming to encourage in you that can only be produced by the spirit of God through the word of God because of what Christ has done for us. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about being thankful in the middle, in the middle of suffering. And so this morning, I want to look at, uh, I want to look at where that thankfulness comes from. And I want to look at three truths that we must remember in order to be thankful in every circumstance. And we're going to learn that from a description of what Jesus Christ has done for us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So read along with me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And the Lord says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The first truth that we must remember in order to be thankful in every circumstance is we must remember our former fate. We must remember our former fate. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. 
He says here, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You must remember that your true condition prior to Christ intervening into your life was that we were dead. We were dead. Being dead here is an ongoing, continual, continual condition of all of mankind prior to the work of Christ, prior to Christ intervening in our life. We are like a corpse. We are spiritually already dead, born dead. And physically, it's just a matter of time for each of our lives. We are dead. Romans 5.12 says, Though or through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all dead in our sin. We are born spiritually dead. We live this life spiritually dead. And when our bodies die, we face eternal death, eternal judgment, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire prepared for Satan and his angels forever. That is our condition. That is our fate. And only God can intercept our eternal destiny. And he has provided the only remedy for our deserved condemnation And that is the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. You got to remember your condition. And we must remember the reason for our death. The reason for our death is sin. We are sinners. In your trespasses and sins, he says, this is why we are dead. Sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin is the cause of death. Romans three twenty three says the wages of sin is death. We exist in a sphere of death and separation and death that is impossible for us to exit apart from God's intervention. This deadness is described in Romans 3. In Romans 3, 9 through 18, Paul bringing together a bunch of Old Testament scripture says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin as it is written. Quoting God in the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There are none who seek for God. All collectively have turned aside. All together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then describing our speech and our words and what we say here on this earth, he says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they continually deceive. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All unbelievers cannot read that and agree, but every child of God knows that's exactly what I was prior to Christ doing something to me and in my life. Those are heavy words, but do we trust his assessment of our heart? Are we going to stand in judgment against his word and say, well, it wasn't that bad? We were dead in our sin. We could never seek after him. We had no desire for it. Even Romans, after Romans 3, there's even more. Ephesians 2.12 says, on our own, here's what we are. We exist separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in this world. Romans 5 says that we are helpless. Romans 5 says that we are sinners, that we are enemies of God. 
Romans 5 also says that death reigns in us. It rules in us. It controls us. We are collectively heading towards condemnation. Romans 8 says we're hostile towards God in our thoughts, in our understanding, in our decisions. Romans 8 also says that we're not even able to do anything to please God. There's enmity between us and God. There is war between us and God. And Romans 1 says that we are haters of God. That's what we are. That is being dead in sin. This is what every child of God formerly was and what we would currently be if it were not for Jesus Christ. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit, now working in the sons of disobedience. Sin does separate us from God, but sin also associates us with Satan. He says, you formerly walked, you formerly lived. This is a description of how we used to conduct our lives and how we behaved. He says, remember, or we need to remember that we were allied with a present world system designed by Satan. We formerly lived according to the standard of this world. We formerly lived according to the guidelines, the rules, the beliefs, the code of this present age. We formerly conducted ourselves according to the morals and the ethics, the habits and the customs established by people here on this earth. This is a meticulously organized system always opposed to God, always opposed to the gospel, always opposed to his truth. And not only were we in it, but we were active agents working in it. In John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Our allegiance in this life is revealed by who we love and who loves us. Do you love Christ and are you loved by him? Or do you love this world and are you welcomed by this world? Our devotion is disclosed by what we do and what we pursue. It's either Jesus Christ or it's you. That's it. Those of the world are concerned with things of this world. They're not concerned with God. They're not concerned with eternity. They're not concerned with judgment. And this world system, like I said, was intricately woven together purposefully to distract, to distort, and to destroy. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that for this purpose, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Think about that. Every religion, every opinion, every philosophy, every ideology, all entertainment, everything on this planet works together to keep you blind to the truth of Jesus Christ so that you will not believe and you will not accept him or you'll accept some distortion of the gospel of Christ and miss the saving faith that comes through total submission to him. We live in a world governed by Satan. And we were allied. Remember that you were allied with the present world ruler, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience currently. Jesus, God himself, calls Satan the ruler of demons in Matthew 12. Jesus, God himself, calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, John 14, and John 16. 
Jesus understood the authority granted to Satan for a period of time, and even that authority is still under the submission of a sovereign God who controls all things for the good of his children and the glory of his son. But do not dismiss the evil of this world or of the ruler of this world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, speaking of those who are in the world or of the world, he says, they think as the world thinks. They take their opinions ready-made from their favorite newspaper. Their very appearance is controlled by the world and its changing fashions. They all conform. It must be done. They dare not disobey. They're afraid of the consequences. Now more than ever, you know this and I know this. We see this in our culture. To disagree, to disapprove, to disassociate with the culture will cost you dearly in this life. But you must remember to conform, to comply, and to cooperate with the culture will cost you dearly for all eternity. We must remember that we are an active part of this world system, that we were allied with Satan, and remember that in our alliance with the world system and with Satan, we were active. Our lives were governed by personal enmity and hostility towards God. It says, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and were, uh, I'm sorry, and of the mind. The flesh is always, 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 always set against Christ, set against God. This is said over and over in the Bible. Galatians 5, 16 through 21 says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Why? So that you may not do the things that you please. The spirit sets his desire against your will and your desires so that you may not do the things that you please. And so that you will do the things that please the Lord. And that's something that only the spirit can produce. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have already forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We formerly abided by our desires, our wishes, our will, our resolve. And not only having desires that are opposed to God, but actively and habitually acting on those desires instead of submitting to the will of God. Romans 8 talks about this, 5 through 8. He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is not something that we can produce on our own. This is not something that we can immerse ourselves out of on our own. We are dead. And we are actively at war with God at all times. This is our former life, former life. And remember that we were destined for wrath. He says, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. I think this talks about both eternal wrath and present wrath. James Montgomery Boyce says, there is a present dimension to God's wrath and there is a future dimension to God's wrath. 
The present dimension you can read about in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed uh, as men suppress the truth of Christ, as men do not honor God, and as they do not give thanks. So because of our lack of thankfulness, the wrath of God is, is, is warranted here on earth, and a lack of thankfulness may reveal that you're currently under the wrath of God. And then in Hebrews 10, we see the eternal wrath for those who presently reject Christ and fall in the hands of a living God. It's the unavoidable, terrifying, predetermined punishment that every living soul faces apart from the work of Jesus Christ. In order to be thankful, you've got to remember what you were. Because remembering what you were and what you deserve, who you used to serve, and what used to motivate you and and drive your life will then cause this next point to be greater and greater and greater than anything you could ever imagine. The second truth we have to remember in order to be thankful in every circumstance is we must remember God's lavish love. Look at verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love of which he loved us, You must remember the richness of his majestic love. But God here is an adversative coordinating conjunction, which just means it is the complete opposite of everything we just talked about and everything that we are naturally. There's a lot of these in the Bible. And many of them express the absolute stark contrast between the actions in the heart of man and the actions in the heart of God. And here you have the condition of man completely completely opposite of the heart and the plan and the mind of God. And that's a good, good thing. We must remember God's unending mercy. The word for his rich mercy here appears 352 times in the Septuagint. There's seven different words translated mercy. The most common one is the word that means steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping, loving kindness. Because of God's covenant-keeping, loving mercy and the richness of that mercy. Harold Honer in his commentary on this says, it is used of God who shows his mercy to his people with whom he has made a covenant because God has made a covenant with his people. He is faithful in extending his mercy to them. It's a mercy not based on your warranting it or or your merit or your good. It's a mercy based on his word and his will and his promises that were predetermined before the foundation of this world. It's a mercy that cannot miss. It's a mercy that lasts forever. It's a mercy that always completes exactly what the, 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 the benefactor of the mercy wants it to complete. It's new covenant language describing a merciful love unimaginable to the hearts and minds of men. It's the same mercy you see in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. It's the same mercy that Christ talked about before we went to the cross. And we must rejoice in the compassion, the pity, the kindness, the mercy that God extends in love to those he has made a covenant with and sent his son to die for. We also must remember his undeserved love, his agape love, this affection, this concern given to us that again, we never deserved and we could not earn. It's a love given to us not because it is warranted but because of the goodwill of the giver. It's a purposeful love that always seeks the highest good of the one get, that, that, is, that is receiving the love. It's an undeserved love. 
It's an unearned love, an unmerited love, an unwarranted love, a love not based on the worth or the worthiness of the beneficiary, but it is a love freely given by the volition and discretion of the benefactor, God. This is the love that he gives to us. God extends his love to those who do not deserve it, to those who do not desire it, to those who cannot discern it, and to those who do not even have the capability of discovering it. This is what he has done for us. Unending mercy, undeserved love. In 1 John 4, he says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us and he sent his son, whom he loved more than anything, to come and to appease his own wrath that we rightfully deserve because of everything we just talked about. That is love. That is the greatest manifestation of his love. And then, beyond that, we have to remember the results of God's undeserved love, the results of his love. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even when here, he's pointing back to what we just talked about, to escalate and emphasize the difference between what our condition was and what his love does. This is the greatness of his mercy and love. And here Paul tells three or uses three rare words to describe the result of God's love because there's no word to describe what his love does. He says here that he made us alive together with Christ. The word means to cause, to live together again with. There's nothing else that we need a word like that for because that describes nothing else. To make alive together with Christ. It's a rare word, never used in the Septuagint, never used in classic literature, only used here and in Colossians 2.13. It has no reference to beginning or end. It means that it is already done. And it's not yet done. And that's pretty cool. He has made us alive together with Christ. Association with Christ in union with Christ in conjunction with Christ. How does this happen? He says, by grace, you have been saved. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor gifted to us by God. He has delivered us. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us and restored us to safety. Something we could not do in our deadness. Jesus Christ, by his grace, He has saved us from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God, from eternal separation from God, both now, presently in this life, and eternally. He has rescued us from danger. Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from his love. He then says he's raised us up with Christ. Again, a very unique word, which means resurrected together with. Again, what other context would that, there is no other context other than this. And it has no reference to beginning or end. It is done and he is not done. 
We too are raised to life together with Jesus Christ. We are raised in association with him. We are raised in union with Christ. Spiritually, now, that come, we know that in Romans 6, 3 through 11, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into the death of Christ Jesus have been baptized, I'm sorry, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too in this life have been raised together with Christ. And we now, though we're dead formally, can walk in newness of life, a life only given to us by Christ, a life imparted to us and raising us together with him. And he goes on to say, he says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I think speaking of future resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We have been made alive and we have been raised together with Christ. We are no longer slaves to our sins. We are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer unable to understand him, to come to him, to follow him, to discern him. We now have been given new life and we have been raised to live this life in holiness and submission to him. And that is all a grace gift given to us by him. And physically, soon, we will be raised in the same likeness and in the same manner. Just as Christ rose from the grave in bodily form and ascended to heaven, we too will rise from the ground in bodily form with an eternal body and an eternal soul that will never die and never sin and never decay and, and never grow old. And we will return together with Jesus Christ and reign on this earth with him for a thousand years. This is what he has done for us. In John 5, Jesus talks about this. He says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He has the authority and the power, the ability to give life to whom he chooses. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Do you trust him or not? He does what he says he will do and he has the authority and power given to him by his father to give life to whom, whoever he wants and he will raise them himself. And he is the first example for all the rest. First Corinthians 15 says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you die and your only lineage is Adam, then you die again at the judgment seat of Christ. But if you die in Christ, then you will be raised together with him in his likeness by his power through his word and you will live with him and reign with him and rule with him forever on this earth. And he guarantees it. All those who believe the father who sent the son, he will give eternal life. Revelation 25 through 6 talks about this. The first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over them the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Not only were we made alive, not only were we raised together with him, but look at this. He says, he seated us together with Christ. Again, a very unique word, which means to sit down together with, to sit with, and then in conjunction or affiliation, union with Jesus Christ. It's used here, it's used in Luke 22, but basically is saying that our spiritual exaltation, our spiritual glorification is connected with Christ's exaltation and glorification 
And that is awesome because we don't deserve that. Only he deserves glorification for all eternity. But it says in his word, he says in his word, we will be made like him, we will be made holy, we will be made blameless, we will be undefiled and without sin. It has currently happened spiritually and it will happen eternally. We will be together with him and be made like him. And it also has reference in status and power. It says that we have the right, the boldness, the confidence to claim entitlement uh, to heaven and that only by God's grace. No man with even a, 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 a little bit of understanding, would ever be so bold to think he deserves heaven apart from Christ. But in Christ, you can have the boldness to know that heaven is a gift given to you and he is the one that has the authority to give it. Our physical exaltation and glorification is connected with that of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure, we will reign with him. In John 17, now this is cool. In John 17, at the very end, you got Jesus Christ praying for future believers that come to faith through what the apostles write. Basically, you know, everybody always tells you the Bible is never talking about you specifically. It has implications and applications in our life. But here, Jesus Christ, God himself, is actually specifically praying for every person in this room that is born of, of, of his spirit, that is born from above, that has faith. And it's really cool because he's praying for future believers. And here's what he prays. Here's what he prays for you currently now if you are his. He says, the glory God, he's praying to his father, which you have given to me, to the son. He says, I have given to them to those who believe in me, that they may be one. Now, again, I don't even know what this means. If anybody knows what this means, raise your hand. But the, the glory that God the Father gives to God the Son, the Son is now bestowing on all those who believe in him. Now, I mean, we can, we can describe what that means. And at the same time, our little pea brains cannot fathom or comprehend what Jesus Christ is saying right now. The glory that the Father has given to the Son, the Son gives to his children. The Son gives to those who believe in him. That they may be one, just as we, Father, you and I are one. I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And then he says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, those who believe in me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. His prayer there is for us to be given the glory that he has been given by his father and for us to remain in him and make it to him so that we will see the glory that the father gives to the son for all eternity, the glory that he had given to him for eternity past and all eternity future. He wants us to see his glory and to be a part of that glory. And this is the love of Christ. And this is what it means to be seated with him in the heavenlies that we have been given all of this because of his mercy, because of his love, all of this, only in Jesus Christ. All of this is only possible in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, what he did on the cross. This is who he is. And what's the reason for God's love here? The purpose statement is verse seven, so that all of this, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is unbelievable. I think I already said it, but I'll say it again. All of this love and all of this mercy given to us freely because he loved us, ultimately, ultimately, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his love for his son. So that in the ages to come, 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Part of what God is doing is displaying his love for his son, that we are all love gifts from the father to the son, and the son will give all things back to the father, 1 Corinthians 15, so that the father is all in all, that he receives all glory and all honor for all eternity, and all the things that are happening currently in our life, even through trials and sickness and trouble and death, all of those things prove his love for his son and prove the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's a good reason to be thankful. No matter what it is we're walking through, and we walk through hard stuff. It's not belittling the circumstance. It's making great the one who receives all the glory so that in the circumstance, we're thankful in all things. Finally, the third truth that we must remember in order to be thankful in every th- circumstance is we have to remember our predetermined purpose. Our predetermined purpose. And we have to remember that a lack of faithfulness will immediately extinguish thankfulness in this life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for this purpose, so that we would walk in them, so that we would live in them. Remember God's predetermined plan for all of his people. Salvation is a gift of God by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, generously, freely given to us by God. By grace, we are saved through faith. Even the faith that we have to believe, to trust, to rely on his promises, to know he is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do, even that is a gift of his unmerited grace. It is a faith that we must have, and it's a faith that he imparts in us. It's a faith that he produces. It's a faith that he grows. It's a faith that he displays. And it's a faith that he perfects. And we're still called to have faith. The gift of God and the responsibility of man are working together simultaneously here perfectly for salvation so that no one can ever boast in themselves. No one can ever say, well, it was my upbringing. It was my, it was my good morals. It was my thoughts. It was my uh, you know, reasoning or discernment that brought me to faith in Christ. No, it was Christ and Christ alone by the spirit of God, through the powerful word of God, through the blood that he shed on the cross. And that is it. You have no part in it. And at the same time, you must have faith and you must believe. But even that faith is a gift so that no one can boast. If any child of God is in this room right now, you know you don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be alive. You deserve to be in hell already. And the fact that he was patient enough for you to repent and to come to him, to show you mercy and grace, to give you faith, that is a gift. We are the most undeserving. We are the worst on this planet. Like Paul says, we are the chief of sinners. But those are the ones he saves. If you're sitting here still and you think there's an ounce of good in you apart from Christ, you do not know him yet. He requires a full understanding that you deserve nothing but hell and he gives you everything through the blood of his son and not a work, not one work of your life warrants you anything. In fact, apart from him, it's an affront to the cross. God abhors our good works if they're not produced by his spirit. We are his workmanship, he says here. We have been handcrafted by God. We have been purposefully designed, intentionally created, specifically to accomplish his will and his intention, his good pleasure. He says, we have been created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we would accomplish them in our lives. God 
has predetermined all good works. God is accomplishing his will through his works and he transforms us, conforms us, makes us into the image of his son, sanctifies us and puts these things in front of us so that we would walk in them so that his will will be done. And he accomplishes his will on earth through the church, through those who belong to him, through those who are submissive to him, through those who are listening to him, through those who live their life in compliance to what he says in his word, in submission uh, to, to his word and to his will out of a fear and a love for him. And that's, that's incredible that he takes the dead and gives them life and then uses them to produce life and to sanctify those who were once dead. Remember God's predetermined purpose for all of his people. We are created by Christ to accomplish his will on earth. Again, John 17, 17 through 18, him praying for future believers. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Part of the work that God is doing through us and in us and that we must submit to him and do is to sanctify one another. God will sanctify us through the word of God and we are called to go out and to encourage, to admonish, to edify one another so that we are all sanctified and made more into the image of Jesus Christ and that only comes through the preaching of his word. That's why we're doing what we're doing now. That's why we do what we do in Sunday school. That's why we have men's groups and women's groups and youth groups and kids groups and college groups and all the other groups. They're all preaching the word of God and if they're not, then they need to stop. Because it's the word of God that sanctifies us. It is the word of God that transforms us. It's the word of God that edifies us. And we must preach the word of God. He says, and as you sent me into the world, speaking to his father, he says, I also have sent them into the world. This is the other part of our purpose here on this planet. It's to edify and to sanctify one another. And it's to go into the world and to find our brothers and sisters that are still in the darkness, that are still blinded in their sinfulness, that are still out in the world that he has predestined to come to him and we must proclaim the, the message of the king, the message of their savior. We must proclaim the message of Christ. We are royal priests sent by the king with a message of God and his children will hear it and all the others will hate us, but we must herald his truth. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus before his ascension told the disciples, go, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is our job, to go into the world, to tell them about Jesus Christ, and to teach them to follow, to submit to, to observe all that Christ has told us. And he is always with us, even to death. Romans 10, 14 through 17. He says, how then? Will they call on him who they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. So faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is our job. We are the royal priests and you are sent by the king. You have a purpose and a plan here on this earth and we must do what our king commands. We go and we preach Christ. We tell those who don't know Christ about Christ and we remind them of their fearful fate. We remind them of the love of God. We remind them of what Christ has done for us. This is what we do here on this earth. And Jesus Christ will save and sanctify all of his sheep. He misses none. None can be snatched out of his hands. He knows them all by name. They will all come to him. But you and I must be faithful to preach his truth, to proclaim his gospel, to tell others of Christ. 
He is the one that conforms each of us into his image. But he uses us to speak his word, to encourage, edify, and admonish one another so that each of us become more and more like Christ. God's will will be done. His mystery has been proclaimed. He has lavished on us insight and wisdom to know him, to know his plans, to know his purposes, to know his will. He has established his plan here on this earth and he is hunting for all of his children and he will find them all. And he has graciously allowed each child of God in this room to be a part of the hunting, to go and to proclaim the message of Christ on this earth so that our brothers and sisters will hear his words and come to him. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with us and everything to do with Christ. Our words become instruments of his grace as we submit to him and we take part in the salvation and the transformation of our brethren when we obey his command and speak his words of salvation. And that, all of that, even that, is a gift of his wonderful, marvelous grace. So we have to remember our predetermined purpose. In order to be thankful, let's review. We must remember our fearful fate. We must remember God's lavish love. We must remember our predetermined purpose. Thanksgiving is coming. It's a few days away. But who cares? Every day before and after that is a day of thanksgiving. And there's no better day, though, to give thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ and to remind everyone at the table with us or in the house with us of their deserved destiny, the free gift he's given to us by his wonderful love, and reminding our brothers and sisters of of our purpose and plan here on this earth. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ with your family. Tell them of Christ. Remind them. Remind them of what God has done for us that we deserve death and hell, but he sent a son out of his wonderful, lavish love for us to die on the cross for our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins, that God became a man and put on flesh and willingly in joy went to the cross, enduring the shame uh, so so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have eternal life, not based on anything good in us. And you're not standing in judgment over them, God is. And you're no better than them. But God is perfect and good, holy, righteous, and loving. Remind them of the wrath of Christ. Remind them of the love of Christ. Tell them they must believe in Jesus Christ. And be thankful in every circumstance. We have been given so much in him. And there is so much to come. And every trial, every, every trouble in our life, every circumstance that is impossible to to see through is purposed for you to grow in joy and in thankfulness to trust him and to entrust yourself to him so that you will glorify him magnify him and he will be glorified for all eternity by what he does in us here on this earth let's pray father thank you so much for your word It is so easy for us to forget. It is so easy for us to get distracted. It is so easy for us to to question your will and your ways, your character and your word when when we face trials and, and tribulations and persecution and evil in this life. But we thank you that your word your word shines light even on those situations and reminds us to rejoice with great joy in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the persecution, 
knowing full well that it is always purposed to produce a faith in us, to reveal a faith in us, to result in the salvation of our souls, to conform us into the image of Christ, to bring glory to your son and to cause us to be thankful and to rejoice. Lord, help us to be men and women of faith. Help us to be thankful in every circumstance, to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is your will in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, to give thanks. In your heavenly name we pray, amen.